for coming to the Guardian of the White Knife live stream. I am your host, Dave Rick Snowbeard. <laughs> My real name is Dave, if you didn't know that. In any case, uh, thanks for joining me today. I've got my snowbeard and my King of Winter flowing locks, and I have my black approximation of the King of Winter crown. It's not officially a cosplay. Uh, if I was officially cosplaying, I'd have actual swords, and it would look more realistic, but I didn't. I just took an old sort of cheap plastic golden crown, such as they used to give out at Burger King, and painted it black. But you know what? On YouTube, you can't tell the difference. Uh, so there you go. Let me just sort of straighten this end. Yes. Uh, truth be told, I'm not sure how long... This all is going to last. It's a little uncomfortable. I think uh, by the time Con of Thrones comes around, I'm going to need to get a better beard, you know, one that affixes to my mustache so it moves properly when I talk. But we will get it going, guys. We'll get it going. I just want to throw out something fun. Thanks, everyone, for coming. I, you know, didn't expect quite as many people as usual. It's sort of a add-on live stream and... There are other live streams going today. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't see that when I scheduled. But shout out to Azor Hype, a good friend of mine. I'll be speaking with him at Con of Thrones on a panel. He's doing a live stream today. So if you want to bounce back and forth or say hi to him, that is totally acceptable. I have uh, deputized some of my head witches. So all y'all in the chat, watch out. Be, uh, be nice. That's all I have to say. Or my witches will put you on timeout. They will send you to the naughty corner and put you on timeout, so watch out. Thanks, everyone, for coming in. Melanie, Raven Salix, Alicia Kingston, Kimberly, Bernie, Peter Fontaine, Emilio, Brian Taylor, some of my, yeah, Lady Dane, upgrade ya, in honor of Beyonce, we'll upgrade ya. And we, uh, we got Emma Smith and San Rixian, Bernie the Burnt, might have said that already, but I'll say it again. Hey, guys, thanks for coming. Painkiller. Steph is more witches. Yes, the witches that we burn, they don't, they actually stay lit on fire because they're sorceress and made of fire. So we've sort of flipped that around on y'all. In any case, uh, thanks for joining me, everyone. All right, so let's go ahead and start off with some questions that were sent in by my patrons. Hey, Grin, you're not late. I was late. I'm just getting started. Hey, Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Rune. Thanks for coming. Isabel. Isabel. Why do I always say Isabel? Isabel. I guess I try to put in ice into everything. So, uh, bronze stares of the lily white scales and bronze horns, wing bones, and spinal crest, a wise old dragon who riddles with sphinxes. He is, of course, our one dragon patron, our one and only dragon patron. And he likes to send in thoughtful questions. And uh, he's done it again. He says, great job on the Stark that brings the dawn. 
Here are a few questions for the live stream. When Azora High brought down the moon, do you think he was in Westeros or Shy? Seems like Westeros, right? Because that's where the Weirwoods and the Children of the Forest are. Yes, I would tend to assume so. Um, just for the general narrative sense that Westeros is where the story centers. Uh, we've got ample evidence of Azor High and or dragon people coming to Westeros. That's kind of the whole point of the Great Empire of the Dawn theory is to bring the Azor High freight train of dragon symbolism over to Westeros so we can do interesting things. And if uh, Nissa Nissa is a child of the forest... It's likely that she came from Westeros. I guess she could have been taken from Westeros back to Ashai in the Great Empire of the Dawn. But I would guess that a story is more like Azor Ahai coming to Westeros and, uh, you know, doing his thing. And I would probably have to guess that the God's Eye would be the place uh, that, you know, the the most dark sorcery was, was performed. I do, think, um, I do think that there's a lot of truth to the various legends that hang around the god's eye. One legend is that there was mass human sacrifice, either of people or of children of the forest, children, the children of the children of the forest. I think it's more likely that it was humans that were sacrificed myself, but who knows. But I do think there was a blood sacrifice ritual on the, on the Isle of Faces, even if it, I don't think that the story is uh, the children of the forest bringing down the hammer to break the arm in order to stop the migration. I don't think that part of the story is true, but I do think green seer magic was used by Azor High, and I think it probably did involve blood magic and human sacrifice, uh, possibly of Nissa Nissa or children or who knows, because uh, we do have some sacrificed babies in the story. And then, um, so I, th- I think that whatever blood magic did happen went down on the Isle of Faces, and I'm very much excited to see the Isle of Faces Get a glimpse of my horny old ones if they're there. We'll see. Let's see. uh, Number two, if Nissa Nissa equals the Amethyst Empress, was she a children of the forest or a purple-eyed heiress to the great empire of the dawn? Could it be that the Opal Emperor came to Westeros and married a child of the forest and they had a daughter, Nissa Nissa Amethyst Empress, and a younger son, Azor Ahai? Yes, all that's possible. Um, I don't think that Azor Ahai caused the Long Night and then built the Blackstone Fortress at Battle Isle, for example. I think that the Fewstone Fortress would have been built first when the Great Empire of the Dawn first came to Westeros and needed a place to live and a place to trade from. Uh, I've, I've compared uh, the Valerians and the Great Empire of the Dawn people to the Phoenicians, who had a habit of building a fortress outpost city uh, just sort of just off the shore of a land that they wanted to trade with. And uh, they would use that as a base of operations. That's just how Dragonstone is used. And I suspect uh, Battle Eye would be similar. Uh, so the scenario I imagine in my head is the Great Empire of the Dawn coming to Westeros for a while before the Long Night, establishing trade, learning magic, doing whatever it is that they're doing. So there's ample time for the bloodline of the Children of the Forest from Westeros and the Gemstone Emperors of the East to mingle uh, before Nissa Nissa slash the Amethyst Empress is born. Uh, it could also be that Amethyst Empress and Nissa Nissa aren't the same people. Uh, but they're just, they serve the same role, or that one is the daughter of the other, just like Azor High and the Last Hero Knight's King could be a generational thing or a brother-brother thing. Uh, the same goes for Nissa Nissa and the Amethyst Empress. They could be the same person, or they could be related people. So, And by the way, uh, as I'm answering these questions, if you guys have your own opinions, uh, feel free to throw them into the chat. Uh, for example, Ricky Barnhart asks, was Nissa Nissa a singer? Ricky, uh, check out the 
Weirwood Goddess series that I've done, which talks about Nissa Nissa and all the clues that she's a child of the forest. In honesty, the clues that Nissa Nissa was a child of the forest are much stronger than the idea that Nissa Nissa is also the Amethyst Empress. Uh, because we don't have a lot of clues about the Amethyst Empress, but we have so many people playing the Nissa Nissa role that show us Child of the Forest symbolism. So I'm I'm dead set on that idea. And it makes so much narrative sense. We've got Azor High trying to break his way into the internet. Uh, so I very much think that Nissa Nissa was something of a gateway to the in, the Weirwood Net for Azor High. Thanks, Amanda. You didn't have to do that. I appreciate that. Super chat for the beard. I guess I'll have to keep it on a little bit longer now. So going through Bronsteri's questions, number three, before Azor Ahai brought down the moon, do you think he was mainly a good guy or a bad guy? Why do you think he brought it down? Uh, and did he do it before or after he met Night's Queen? So before, I think Night's Queen is at the end of the process. I think Azor Ahai comes to Westeros. He commits the great sin and brings down the moon, um, either accidentally or intentionally, which I'll go back to in a second. And then somewhere after this transformation process, at the end of the line is where Night's Queen comes in, I believe. Um, and I think, I think it's after, you know, Azor Ahai, at least after he turns dark and turns into this dark solar figure during the long night, that he would then be able to create Night's Queen with the others. But I'm still trying to figure out what the deal is with Night's Queen uh, and the and the Weirwood Net, because Night's Queen seems to be related to the Weirwood Net in some sense. She might be some part of Nissa Nissa's ghost taking a new form, or maybe she's a sister of Nissa Nissa. Um, someone pointed out that there is a child of the forest named Snowy Locks, uh, which kind of gives you the idea of a Nissa Nissa elf woman with snowy hair, so... Um, sorry, I forgot what your name was who uh, gave me that tip, but I did see it, and you're smart. So feel glorious. Um, so in any case, uh, we will eventually get to that. We've been debating it hotly on Twitter, whether or not Nissa Nissa and Night's Queen are the same person, because we do see some Nissa Nissa characters turn into a Night's Queen character. We're going to see that with Sansa and Cersei. Um, but we also see Visenya and Rhaenys, who seem to be very separate characters, and we get Fire Moon Queens like Melisandre, who never do turn icy um, or cold. So it's kind of, you know, it's still up in the air. I would almost call it 50-50 at this point. But we will try to figure that out and uh, come up with a good theory on that. Uh, oh, the first part of that question, before Zora High brought down the moon, do you think he was mainly a good guy or a bad guy? So I think it's probably a little more boring if he's just a bad guy and he broke the moon in order just to mess everyone's life up. I have to think that it's more in line with the traditional Prometheus-Lucifer theme, which is he was trying to attain the fire of the gods. Um, you could call that selfish, or it could be an act of bold discovery for all of humankind. Um, he might not have been trying to break the moon. He might have been trying to uh, just, I don't know, pray to the comet and harvest its magic, and he accidentally steered it into the moon. Uh, we don't know. I mean, there's probably no way to know. I'm I'm going. I'm guessing mostly based on uh, theme. You know, the theme of of stealing fire for the gods is it's meant to be ambiguous. Um, I don't think it's meant to be sort of this dastardly evil villain kind of thing. But more, if it's a sin, it's more a sin of hubris of someone who just wants try to take on power for themselves and then accidentally screwed everything up but we do have people like euron 
who's pretty much straight evil. He's He fits into the Lucifer mold of someone trying to steal the fire of the gods and become a god for himself. But this is about as evil a version of this character as we have seen. So it could be that the Bloodstone Emperor was somebody like Euron, who was fairly villainous. Um, you know, maybe maybe he got the Black Stone first and was praying to the Black Stone in secret, and it was corrupting him like the ring uh, to the point where he became evil enough to be, you know, to try to seize the fire of the gods and, and break the moon. So, and yeah, shout out on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle's at the Dragon LML, and if you follow me, you'll see my threads and you'll see other people's threads. There's a big crew of us on the Twitteros. And uh, then you can just start following everyone who's sort of in the debate, and then you'll sort of you'll be in the debate, you'll be in the circle, and it's pretty fun. So come on and join us, Yen Sid. Thank you for the super chat. Sorry I'm late. Sending some support your way. Oh, well, thank you, thank you very much, Emilio. Couple of donations in here. He is getting the train going. He says, "I think you're on. We'll be remembered as Azora High." Yeah. So uh, that's that's a good one. And I someone. Uh, I didn't grab it for the chat, but someone did mention, you know, what if Euron gets a hold of uh, Nightfall, the sword of, uh, I believe it's House Harlaw, with the Moonstone Pommel. There's a couple other Valerian steel swords, Red Rain, also floating around the Ironborn. And who knows? I mean, Euron just broke out a suit of Valerian steel armor that he had locked up in a chest somewhere. So who's to say he doesn't have an original Valerian steel sword that nobody's ever seen before? Uh, I'd like to see him whip Bright Roar out that would be pretty fun wouldn't it so yeah i would not surprise me at all to see Euron with the valyrian steel sword and he's definitely the evil version of azor Ahai, if anybody is uh searing abyss thanks for all the support last time buddy uh let's see in the last few series you talked a lot about the danes i've heard george had planned for them to have a larger role but changed his outlines around book three does this factor into your theories so i think that we are going to see more from the danes uh, but the the whole five year gap thing changed what he was doing uh, with the Danes pretty significantly because I think originally Edric Dane would have come out the other side for feast and dance as as uh, about nineteen, and he would have been an ideal person to wield Dawn at least for a time. My whole theory is that if Dawn's going to be wielded, it's only going to be wielded by Darkstar or Edric for a time at which point they'll be killed on a battlefield or something, and it'll find its a way into the hands of, you know, either John or Jamie or somebody like that. Uh, unless Dawn is a actually a magic sword like a milk glass candle that's meant to be used for sorcery and not chopping people, in which case I like the idea of Danny getting a hold of it, because, of course, both John and Danny have Dane blood. Um, but it's definitely possible that originally Edric Dane was going to figure more prominently... But I, I don't think that that we ever he ever planned to have Edric become like a main main character, you know, or like even a secondary main character, like like say Brienne or someone, because we don't have any Edric Dane POVs. He just dashes in and out of Storm really quick. So we'll see. I I hope that um, Emilio. I hope that uh, Edric plays a part in taking the sword back from Darkstar. Like if Darkstar steals it, I'd like to see. Edric Dane, at least as part of the group that that takes it back, but he could end up sacrificed too. Um, I I do really hope to see uh, Edric grow up and marry Arya. I guess if uh, if there's anything nearly so happy and sweet uh, could happen, I guess the most we'd get is some sort of betrothal by the end of uh, you know 
a dream of spring. So we'll see. Uh, Peter Fontaine says, It would be a cool inverted Kingswood Brotherhood scenario if Jamie leads Ned Dane and the Brotherhood, uh, Brother Without Banners, against a Dane in Darkstar. You know, I had never thought of the idea of Jamie coming out as the leader of the Brotherhood Without Banners. But to be honest, almost anything is possible. Oh, uh, Edria! Oh, what a good ship name. That's awesome. Nice Lady Dane. Edria. That's the name of that ship. Uh, in any case, um, so last we know, Jamie and Brienne went into Stoneheart's lair. And we don't know who's going to come out or in what state. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's an outside chance that we could see more people get zombified. Uh, you know, if we're going to get the whole green zombies idea, I mean, maybe Jamie gets killed and then gets the flame of life somehow and becomes un-Jamie. I mean, that's I'm just whipping out the tinfoil here, but the, anything is possible. It's definitely possible that Jamie could somehow come to lead that. It would take a dramatic event or a changing of events, but it's not impossible. Definitely not impossible. All right, yeah, so I've got some agreement from Rusted Revolver uh, that, the, uh, that Jamie could end up uh, leading the Brotherhood. And uh, Painkiller Jane, yeah, so... She mentioned that the other day on Twitter, Jamie joining the Brotherhood. I totally missed that, but uh, yeah, that's. I'm glad everyone's sort of thinking along those lines. So, because I mean, he is sort of turning, turning otherish, as uh, Raven Salix likes to point out. He's got his hair's going gray. Uh, last we saw him, he's wearing the winter whites of the Kingsguard. Uh, they do have that weirwood table in there. I'm actually going to talk about the. White Sword Tower in an upcoming episode. It's got some great dragon lock to nice symbolism. So, number four, Bronze Stairies. The World Book tells us that Garth Greenhand arrived in Westeros long before the first men crossed the land bridge into Dorne, or at least that he may have, which I assume means that Garth was a dragon rider from the Great Empire of the Dawn. It also says that Garth taught the Westerosi how to farm and that Garth had tons of children with them. The only people he could have taught to farm and had children with are the first men after they migrated to Westeros. But if Garth sired so many children in Westeros, then why are the Danes and Hightowers and maybe the Lannisters the only current Westeros who show any traces of Great Empire of the Dane hair color and eyes? Eye color. So I don't assume that Garth Greenhand is from the Great Empire of the Dawn. At least if he was, I think that he would have been from an earlier age, not from the Long Night Age. If he came to Westeros, it would have been thousands of years earlier. Now, some of you guys that watched my live stream uh, with Ideas of Ice and Fire, where we talked about the magical creatures, I unleashed part of my theory about the Old Ones being the original Garth people, the Sacred Order of Green Men, you know, stag men with the antlers or whatever they, whatever form that George has of that idea, are still living on the Isle of Faces, and they're actually the same as those old ones from Lang, who were, of course, part of the Great Empire of the Dawn. And so I do think that if Garth comes from Lang or from the East, if you will, and he shares a lineage, let's say, with the old ones on Lang, then he is an immigrant to Westeros. The thing is that I think the first, I don't know that he was there first. I, I really think that the first men came there and were established before the Great Empire of the Dawn came. But at the same time, the Great Empire of the Dawn is a multi ethnic empire. It would have been because it's so huge. So it's possible that the, you know, the, the dragon lord looking people, the ones with golden and silver hair and purple eyes, are basically just 
one tribe of people, one race of people in the great empire of the dawn. So all the normal people that we think of as first men could just be other uh, immigrants from the great empire of the dawn um, that didn't have the dragon lord, you know, weren't related to the dragon lord people. We, we don't know. We can't know, really. Um, Garth is, is pretty tantalizing. The thing is, I will be doing a full version of the Old Ones theory. Uh, so we'll get into the idea of Garth and his origins uh, at that point. So uh, there was a super chat from Senrixian. She said, can we talk about dragons? What do you think about Vagar being white with red accents, growing whiter in her old age? So, of course, I think that Vagar is implied as white because of the hoary word. Um, as far as the accents... Sanry, I mean, we're just guessing. So I guess you have artist license. If you want to make them red, you certainly could. Um, I would probably favor something maybe like copper because Viserion uh, has um, bronze accents. And then Tessarion, the blue queen, has uh, copper accents. I guess copper is pretty much in the same vein as red. It's the reddish metal. And uh, reddish hair is often called copper. So... I would favor copper, but Emma Smith says gold, and that's also could be a good one because hands of gold are always cold. And I think George is implying gold as uh, along the same lines as frozen fire, meaning like gold, the cold metal, is like dragon glass. It's the frozen uh, essence of the sun fire, if you will. And we'll talk about that eventually. Uh, let's see here. Searing Abyss asks, can you change my Patreon nickname to Turin the Elf? Oh God! <laughs> sure, sure. Why not? Let's uh, let's uh, let's give the trolls something to work with. Why don't we? Uh, I <laughs> the spelling trolls, I guess. And I say that with love. I'm actually totally okay with people uh, correcting me for fine points and uh, pronunciation and stuff. I like to get things right. So uh, you know, don't don't take offense, you trolls. Let's see here. Um, Ooh, we got another question from Emilio. Do you think dragons have human blood? So that's really the question is, what do I think is the truth behind the blood of the dragon thingy? The the relationship. There's obviously some blood relationship between dragons and humans. I think it's probably more like the spirit of a human going into the dragon somehow. Um, and I think that probably the dragon blood somehow mingled into the human line because the Targaryens occasionally pop out those, uh, you know, the lizard babies. So it could be, it could be the other way around. I don't know, though. I, I really need to, to make a good theory about how the blood of the dragon works. I'm hoping maybe we'll get some sort of scene or clue about that, um, you know, in the future. I think the best clues we have so far is the idea of Mel wanting to sacrifice a child with king's blood in order to wake a dragon. And and also Daenerys obviously losing her child and possibly having his spirit or his spirit mana, you know, go into that dragons or aid in the hatching of the dragons. So there is this idea of of doing that. Um but I'm just, I'm a little foggy on it, so I'll have to come up with something more specific. Good question, Emilio. Let's go ahead to the next one from Bronsteries. Turin the Elf, the Bloody Utter. Yeah, sure, okay, fine. Whatever. You can, if, if you sign up for Patreon, your name can be whatever you want it to be. So, there it is. Money talks, money talks, baby. 
Let's see. There's here's a tinfoil speculation. Oh, this is a good one. Suppose that Azor High, amongst his many other traits, was a bit like Littlefinger. He was Bale-ish. Suppose he taught the first men to cut down the weirwoods because Azor High wanted to create a war between the first men and the children of the forest, so as to make the children of the forest turn to Azor High for help. So this is the idea of Azor High as the instigator and the trickster who's sowing dissension among two other parties in the way that Peter Baelish sowed dissension among the Lannisters and Starks. That's a pretty good working hypothesis. Uh, let's see here. Uh, and that's how Azor High got them to share their magic with him, which enabled him to become a powerful sorcerer who could attempt to take over the world. Just a thought. That's a pretty good hypothesis. I will kick that out to the chat and the Twitteros for consideration. You guys, let me know what you think about that. Azor High as a trickster figure who sowed dissension between the First Men and the Children of the Forest. That's an angle I have not thought of. Ravenous Reader, what do you think of that? Seems like an idea that you might be into. All right. Trashflagel says, Hi, LML. Just now occurred to me that the similarity between the oily black stone and the monolith from 2001 Space Odyssey. Yes. I'm not sure if you already mentioned that. I have not. And I just missed it. The occurrence of both seem to mark points of biological, social, and technical evolution with all the problems that come with it. Maybe it's just a nod of George Martin towards Stanley Kubrick. I definitely think it is a nod towards Stanley Kubrick. And in particular, I think of the Ironborn supposedly discovering the Seastone chair sitting on the beaches of Old Wick. Like, that's very much like you picture the Ironborn, like, looking like cavemen. Like, what is this... What is this chair? What is this thing? It's like a squid, but it's like a black stone. Maybe we should sit in it or pray to it. I can kind of see that, like the apes <laughs> crawling around the monument, you know, trying to figure out what it is. And also the uh, the black stone is sort of emblematic of the star seeds from the fire moon, which catalyzed death transformation and mushroom clouds and all kinds of things like that. Um and uh, there's, a, there's a cool guy called An American Thinks on YouTube who's done some videos about the God's Eye. And in his last video, he speculated that the oily black stone is actually what caused magical mutation uh, on, on a planetos, possibly allowing humans to become green seers, un- enabling uh, telepathy and things like that. So I definitely think that the black stone can be looked at as that dark fire of the gods that catalyzed mankind in some way so i i like that idea yeah and and of course melanie's referencing an idea i've thrown out which is that the uh foul black weapons that drank the souls of those they slew that the ironborn are reputed to have wielded in ancient times could be actually literally chiseled uh pieces of oily black stone you know melted down into uh to make swords from if it's really meteorite ore Hey, you pack mule. Thanks for showing up, buddy. Enjoying the Moons of Ice and Fire series. I'm glad to hear it. At least you said you were listening to it. I'm assuming you're enjoying it if you're still listening. Uh, So there it is. Let's see here. Let's go to the next question. Oh, Archmaester Emma. So she's got some... Okay, so this is actually going to turn to the uh, John Ice Eyes. Or, sorry, Brandon Ice Eyes. Wolfsden discussion. So let's go ahead and crack that open, I suppose. Awesome episode, as usual. Thanks. Uh, thoughts on the bonus section from Storm Emma. Edric Snowbeard is given the same moniker, the Old King, as Jaehaerys I, who also had a snowbeard, quote-unquote. It was technically a long, white, flowing beard, according to the wiki. 
See, his grandson Viserys once told his... Oh, let me pause to thank Mr. Bronstein, the bronze dragon. Hit me up with a very generous super chat. Ho, ho, ho. Thank you. I really appreciate that. See, his grandson Viserys once told his grandchildren a tale of Jaehaerys flying north to defeat a vast host of wildlings, giants, and wargs at the Wall. This is one of those little-known details, but yes... Uh, supposedly, Jaehaerys flew north to defeat a vast host of wildlings north or at the Wall. So this is a great historical echo, potentially. It makes Jaehaerys sound like an Eldric figure or a last hero figure. And Jaehaerys was also said to grow feeble and weak in his old age, another parallel to King Edric Snowbeard, who ruled for 100 years and grew feeble in his old age. That's when he lost the, uh, the Wolstan. Let's see. The new king is Brandon Isize, Edric's great-grandson, and it's Jaehaerys' great-grandchildren, Rhaenys and Aegon, who have the great half-sibling civil war, the Dance of the Dragons, which brings us back to the Bale episode. This parallel could imply that Brandon got himself the kingdom with a bit of kinsling, potentially, which could then imply Brandon as a Night's King Bale type. Okay, I follow you, I follow you. So let's actually go ahead... I'm going to pull this quote, and we're going to read it. Let's see here. I'll even back up and read a little more. After their fall, the castle had passed through many other hands. House Flint held it for a century, House Locke for almost two. Slates, Longs, Holtz, and Ashwoods had held sway here, charged by Winterfell to keep the river safe. By the way, Ashwoods. There's a house, Ashwood, that used to hold the White Knight, or, yeah, the, uh, the Wolf's Den. So if you've listened to the Weirwood Compendium, you know what that means. See, Reavers from the Three Sisters took the castle once, making it their toehold in the north. During the wars between Winterfell and the Vale, it was besieged by Osgood Aaron, the Old Falcon, and burned by his son, the one remembered as the Talon. That's kind of an interesting echo, too. You've got the Old Falcon, kind of like the Old King, or Edric Snowbeard, and then his son comes along with sort of a different agenda using fire. That's interesting. Okay, so when Old King Edric Stark, that's Edric Snowbeard, had grown too feeble to defend his realm, the Wolf's Den was captured by slavers from the Stepstones. They would brand their captives with hot irons and break them to the whip before shipping them across the sea. And these same black stone balls, walls, <laughs> black stone balls bore witness. All right, I'll just leave you with that one. Do what you will. Uh, then a long, cruel winter fell, said Sir Bartimus. The white knife froze hard, and even the firth was icing up. The winds came howling from the north and drove them slavers inside to huddle round their fires, and whilst they warmed themselves, the new king came down on them. Brandon Stark this was, Edric Snowbeard's great-grandson, him that men called Ice Eyes. He took the wolf's den back, stripped the slavers naked, and gave them to the slaves he'd found chained up in the dungeons. It's said they hung their entrails in the branches of the heart tree as an offering to the gods, the old gods, not these new ones from the south. Your seven don't know winter, and winter don't know them. So getting back to the uh, Storm Emma's question, she points out that technically it doesn't say he freed the slaves, just gave the slavers to the slaves. But if they hung them on heart tree, on the heart tree, then they must have at least gotten out of... Uh, I mean, the heart tree is in the wolf's den, but if they were still locked up, I don't know how they could do the whole blood sacrifice to the trees thing. So... Uh, I would I would think that he did uh, set them out, but the thing that I'm interested in, and I'm just going to pause Emma's uh, question here, or her comments here for a second. 
this whole thing about stripping their skins and giving or stripping them naked and giving the slavers to the slaves. Um, the slavers are the pirates from Bloodstone Island who I think um, I'm on the side, by the way, of Brandon Ice Eyes being Knights King. So I think that these slavers from the Bloodstone Island uh, represent the Night's Watch and the Last Hero. And when they are get, when they're sacrificed to the heart trees, that is the green zombies getting sacrificed. This is the Night's Watch uh, being killed by either by the others or killed ritually. I'm not sure which, um, and being you know sacrificed to the heart trees. And then at that point, their spirits would go into the heart tree and then eventually become resurrected. And I think the part, the continuation of that story is essentially when Davos comes to the wolf's den and finds 12 people that represent dead people living inside the wolf's den uh, who are, they have the last hero math. So that kind of gives you the idea of the people that died at the wolf's den that were sacrificed to the trees. They are inside the wolf's den inside the ice moon, waiting to be reborn. And that's kind of the whole symbolism of the people that are inside the ice moon. Okay, so getting back to Emma's remarks, let's see. This could provide an alternate reading that suggests the slavers were just added to the ranks of the slaves. This could be something akin to the Azor hype type being overthrown by a Knight's King type, then killed and added to the ranks of the dead, or something like that. I think that's implied anyways, Emma, because um, everyone who lives inside the wolf's den is basically a prisoner. Um, that's the whole idea with Garth being both uh, jailed inside the weirwood net, but also the jailer because Garth is synonymous with the tree. The same thing with, goes for Nissa Nissa, um, who in many ways is synonymous. Well, I won't even go there. It's too confusing. But the point is Nick, Nissa Nissa is sacrificed and goes into the tree, but she's also synonymous with the tree. So she's sort of the jailer and the jailed. And I think that theme is, is shown many, many times. And that's the whole thing with joining the hive mind is like you join and then you're part of the hive mind, which then entraps other people. So the idea of giving the slavers to the slaves, yes, everybody is essentially slaves at that point and prisoners. And also we've seen that theme of like, um, you know, the, the people who torture others also suffer damage. Maybe suffer is not the right word, but you, you pay a price for inflicting cruelty on others. Um, and so if you, you know, if what's the what's the quote about revenge? Um, not revenge is always served cold. But if you if you embark upon. Oh, God, I don't even know what it is. It's something having to do with the idea of like, you know, if you're if you're setting out for revenge, then you got to be prepared to uh, to suffer yourself because that's that's always what happens. In any case, if anyone knows that idiom, please supply it. I'm struggling. Oh, that's what it is. With revenge, you dig two graves, one for them and one for yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Yen Sid. Thank you. That is the meaning. Lastly, I just wanted to point out that, uh, point out a second bit of ambiguity with regards to whose entrails are being hung on the trees. Uh, it's said they hung their entrails in the branches of the heart tree as an offering to the gods. Who are the theys? The slaves and the slavers, as is implied. The slaves hanging Brandon Stark's armies in the trees. The slaves offering themselves to the trees in Odin-esque sacrifice. References parallels to the Faceless Men and the House of Black and White could be drawn with this last option, especially given that White Harbor is like a city of black and white, almost matching the statues. Yes, that is true. So let me look at this quote again. It says, 
Yeah, it's said they hung their entrails on the branches of the heart tree as an offering to the old gods. So the the ambiguity here is who exactly was offered to the trees. Um, what I'm more interested is in who's implied as killing the last hero's group. Is it the others that kills them, like, just in battle? And then, you know, the children of the forest help the last hero resurrect them? Or were they killed intentionally to be raised as zombies. I kind of like the second option, but we'll see. Let's see here. Uh, so uh, Storm Emma has some other thoughts that aren't related to the wolf's den. That is Gendry, uh, some Gendry stuff. So I'm going to come back to that. Let's see. I want to go back to... Hang on just a second here. I've got a couple notes on the wolf's den as well. The whole thing about ice, this is really what this gets back down to, to me. When we ask, is, is Brandon Ice Eyes representative of the Night's King or not, is who wielded Dawn, the original ice? Is it something that the others fashioned or Night's King after he became, you know, otherized and frozen and transformed? Or is it, a, is it, a, is it something that our good other made with his ice abilities uh, that Night's King stole? I, I do think Night's King got his hands on it, but I, you guys tell me right now in the chat, what do you favor? Like, was Ice, if Dawn is original Ice, let's just go with that premise, was it created by the Night's King using Ice magic, or is it something created by the good other using his Ice abilities? And then, or the I guess the other option is, uh, is the original Ice, a.k.a. Dawn, originally from the great empire of the dawn and previous to that so throw your ideas out there let me see what you have to say about that i really think we're going to get clues about this um with the whole dark star dawn plot with edric dane i think that whatever happens with dawn is going to be showing us what happened the first time so i'm, I'm probably just going to keep this in a sus- state of suspended um you know uncertainty until we get the next book and we see. Okay, I'm getting enough encouragement. I'm going to go ahead and go ahead and just uh yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's liberating. I have to say. Okay, um Jags, I see your questions here. So uh looks like you haven't listened to the Moons of Ice and Fire series, so I would recommend checking that out. My general theory about Dawn being the original ice is uh, Moons of Ice and Fire 2. Yes, it was me the whole time. No, the 17 birds are under my LML skin sack. That's how that works. Okay. Oh, no one said the crown could come. Okay. All right. Let's see. Okay. I'm still the king of darkness. Always will be. Always will be. By the way, you know, when I first started out... um, I was only I was a slightly bit nervous about not nervous, but like I was like, well, you know, am I going to get trolled for naming myself Lucifer? Are people going to really like misunderstand? Um, And for the most part, I don't. Most people understand that it's a mythology thing. But at this point, like when I do occasionally get the Lucifer comments like, how dare you name yourself after the son of darkness? Lucifer is evil. It's just endlessly hysterical. Um, I seem to mostly get those when I go on other people's YouTube channels and people who haven't heard of me and kind of don't know 
my thing, you know, are just like, oh my God. But uh, it's funny. <laughs> I think it's funny. In any case, hail Satan. Okay, so let's go with, uh, oh, that's right. I was looking for my notes. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. I get easily distracted. Let's see here. I I actually chopped a chunk of the essay off of the, uh, oh, here it is. Okay. So let's talk about Ice Eyes. Um, there are a few people in the books with ice eyes, and I think this adds to the clues about Brandon Ice Eyes and what he's all about. So, uh, let's see, this is Ramsey. Uh, and by the way, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and take a shot at Preston Jacobs here. Uh, he did a whole thing about Ramsey's not really Roos's son, and he was trying to de-emphasize the connections between their eyes because the only thing it's true that the only way that Ramsey and Roos look alive or look alike is by the eyes. Um, but he did not mention that they're both given ice eyes descriptions, which to me is fairly telling. So this is Ramsey here. His lips were wide and meaty, but the thing men noticed first about him were his eyes. He had his Lord father's eyes, small, close set, queerly pale, Ghost gray, some men called the shade, but in truth, his eyes were all but colorless, like two chips of dirty ice. So you'll notice that the ice eyes are called out as being the distinctive mark of the Boltons here, uh, passed on from Roos to Ramsey. And then in Theon's next chapter, we get a description of Roos's ice eyes. So this is only one Theon chapter away. It says, The Lord of the Dreadford did not have a strong likeness to his bastard son. His face was clean-shaven, smooth-skinned, ordinary, not handsome, but quite plain. Though Roos had been in battles, he bore no scars. Though well past forty, he was as yet unwrinkled, with scarce a line to tell the passage of time. His lips were so thin that when he pressed them together, they seemed to vanish altogether. Definitely a contrast to Ramsay's fat lips. Then there there was an agelessness about him, a stillness. On Roos Bolton's face, rage and joy looked much the same. All he and Ramsay had in common were their eyes. His eyes are ice. Reek wondered if Roos Bolton ever cried. If so, do the tears feel cold upon his cheeks? So that's a really great one. Not only do we see the ice eyes, but the whole uh, frozen tears symbolism, which, has, which applies to the wall, for example, that's said to weep, and Alyssa's tears which are, that's the waterfall in the Erie that falls from the giant's lance. And that symbolism is, it's basically, uh, icy tears are ice moon meteor symbols. And they fall from the giant's lance, which is an ice moon symbol. And they fall from Alyssa, who's a night's queen symbol. And they fall from Lysa as she's pushed out the moon door, who's an ice queen. On and on and on and on. So we've got ice eyes and cold tears here. Uh, meaning that this isn't just George describing someone as looking like hard and cold, but actually this is this is intentional symbolism. So Ramsey and Roos literally have no features in common save for their eyes. And just to drive the point home, in Theon's Prince of Winterfell chapter of A Dance with Dragons, Roos appears at the wedding of Jane Poole and Ramsey, and it says Roos Bolton's own face was a pale gray mask with two chips of dirty ice where his eyes should be. And then Arya men- mentions uh, that his eyes are the color of ice when she sees him at Harrenhal in A Clash of Kings. So that's three ice eyes references for Roos and one for Ramsay, which is tied back to Roos. 
Um, both Roos and Ramsey are obviously exceptional Night's King figures, so perhaps Brandon Isize is a Night's King figure too. I mean, it's easy to figure that out, right? It's also true, however, that these stone statues of the Kings of Winter have Isize. And, of course, we know that the whole point of the stolen other baby is that he's an icy person who fights against the others. So I think it's clear that having ice eyes simply implies basically someone that's animated with cold magic. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to make someone an other. But given that Ramsey and Roos have by far the most mentions of the ice eyes symbolism, and they are definitely evil Knights King figures, um, you know, again, this makes me lean towards Ice Eyes Brandon Stark being a Knights King figure. Let me catch up on the chat really quick here. Let's see. Um, all right, back to Brandon Ice Eyes. Getting back to the effort to interpret him as coming down on the wolf's den with the cold winds and the frozen white knife. If Brandon Ice Eyes is Knights King, then the slavers and pirates sacrificed to the Weirwood Tree would represent the last dozen's hero dying to become green zombies. And this is what I was saying a minute ago. With the symbolically dead, dirty dozen living in the wolf's den, representing those sacrificed slavers inside the net. And those are the ones that Davos finds. And consider this, Davos isn't a slaver, but he is, of course, a pirate. Just like the pirates from the Bloodstone, uh, pirates from the Stepstones that were the slavers. So it's easy to see Davos as parallel to the pirates and slavers um, that get sacrificed to the heart tree. And, of course, Davos... He isn't sacrificed to the heart tree, but he's given the red smile by having his head and hands cut off. And then, of course, bloody hands are also a weirwood symbol. And then he gets stuck inside the wolf's den, which is a weirwood prison symbol. So I think that Davos makes a good parallel for the bloodstone slavers. I definitely do. Um, to represent the creation of the green zombies, uh, we've got Davos's symbolic resurrection, but we've also got the Manderleys to depict the green zombies. So this is the other part of the analysis that I just sort of didn't have time to get to. Uh, okay, Raven Salix dropping a good quote. Uh, this is, it says, Bran felt his eyes fill up with tears, but were they his own tears or the weirwoods? If I cry, will, uh, will the tree begin to weep? And this is as Bran is watching visions through the weirwood, I'm pretty sure. So we've got the bloody tears symbolism. So basically we've got, we've got two different kinds of tears. We've got bloody tears and we've got the icy tears and they are occasionally even uh, mingled. So there's a whole line of weeping symbolism that we've got to get into. Yeah, right. The wall weeps, which would be icy tears. Um, so you'll notice a uh, cat at the red wedding. It says the red and the white tears ran together and then when she appears as Stoneheart, she now has black tears. Basically, she has the black blood claw marks on her face, which is like black tears. So in any case, getting back to the Manderleys. The Manderleys are big green zombie symbols. Think about it. They used to be Knights of the Green Hand from the Reach, which is almost the same wording as the uh, Sacred Order of the Green uh, of the Green. Uh, Sacred Order of the Green Men, Knights of the Green Hand. So they are from the River Mander, but they were exiled to the north and the Wolf's Den. So symbolically, they are dead green men who became locked in ice. Meaning like when they lived down in the Reach, they would have represented, you know, living green men. But then they were exiled to this prison of the Wolf's Den. Um, and then they become symbolically dead and locked in ice. And when they arrived, they built White Harbor, which basically is enclosing the wolf's den in ice, or at least white stone. 
Um, and like Garth the Gowler, Gowler, <laughs> the Jailer. So I have to, I have to confess, um, this is one of the edits that I did. So the antiquated way of spelling that of Jailer is G A O L E R, and you actually still say that Jailer. But for the longest time, I thought it was like a different version of the word, and you say it Gowler. So when I did the last uh, podcast, I pronounced it Gowler, and then figured out that I was wrong and actually ran back in and edited it before I put it out. So if you're saying Gowler, there's probably like one or two of you out there saying it. So it's Jailer, just so you know. In any case, um, like Garth the Jailer, Garth the Wrong, uh, who and the cadaverous one-eyed Bartimus, uh, the Manderleys are symbolically transformed and deathly. So check this out. This is the description of Wyman when Davos first meets him. His lordship's cushioned throne was wide enough to accommodate three men of common girth, yet Manderly threatened to overthrow it, uh, overflow it. His lordship sagged in his seat, his shoulders slumped, his legs splayed, his hands resting on the arms of his throne as if the weight of them were too much to bear. Gods be good, thought Davos, when he saw Lord Wyman's face. This man looks half a corpse. His skin was pallid, an undertone of gray. So there you go. He's a green-hand knight who becomes a walking half-corpse. And he has gray skin, which is not only a call-out to the Grey King, but also the Starks, because when Theon notices his skin is like an old man's gray skin, that's when he thinks to himself, ah, Stark at last. Uh, okay, so here is that Theon quote. The bride was garbed in white and gray, the colors the true Arya would have worn had she lived long enough to wed. Theon wore black and gold, his cloak pinned to his shoulders by a crude iron kraken that a smith in Barrelton had hammered together for him. But under the hood, his hair was white and thin, and his flesh had an old man's grayish undertone. A Stark at last, he thought. So let's think about that. Here's a stolen other baby, that's Theon, who's been symbolically killed and reborn uh, many times over, I guess you could say, in the Dungeons of the Dreadfort. And then he returns to Winterfell as a walking corpse with gray skin and considers himself a Stark. And guess what cadet branch of House Stark held the wolf's den the longest before the Manderleys came? It was House Grey Stark, <laughs> of course. And I also think that Theon's white hair could be a preview of Jon Snow, of course, being resurrected with white hair, and his becoming a Stark at last in his own right, which would be, I mean, uh, rather, Jon becoming a Stark at last with white hair, just as Theon did. I'm not sure if I've mentioned this before in relation to Theon's implied honorary Stark status, but there is a Theon the Hungry Wolf Stark in the Stark histories. Sort of enhances the Theon as honorary Stark, uh, yeah. Last thing to note about this is that the Manderleys pretend to serve the Night's King figure of Roose Bolton, but we know that they're actually planning on turning against him and fighting for House Stark. And this could be something like the good other defecting from the others to join the Starks. Um, that's one way in which we can see the stolen other baby as a defector or traitor to the others. And it's also possible that there are two good other figures that there's there's the stolen baby but it's possible that the rescuer figure um himself is somehow a traitor to the others uh or that he was helped by you know uh, one of the knights king let's uh, let's say the knights king did actually ensorcel members of the watch or his companions uh perhaps one of those ensorceled people 
would have defected. And because we've there's there's a lot of good other symbolism that may not necessarily just be the stolen baby. So that's something that I'll be tracking. I think Jamie's got some of that symbolism. And of course, you guys have seen just in the two episodes that I've done last that we've got people that uh, as a child are the stolen other baby, but then grow up and become a rescuer figure. We've got a couple people like that. Theon, for example, is is stolen from his Bale-type father, uh, Balon, and then he is taken back to Winterfell um, to raise, be raised as a Stark. So, but then, of course, later he comes back and rescues Jane Poole and possibly her baby if she's pregnant. So, and then, of course, um, when I do uh, the Ned episode next, I'm going to talk about this more. So there is there is sort of a cyclical thing here. I'm not sure if it's two different characters or if... It's just a thing where the stolen other baby is kind of the Stark archetype. And so every Stark has to have a hint about this stolen other baby symbolism, uh, but can also then be a rescuer figure. So we'll have to figure out how that goes. But the point is that um, Wyman Manderley is technically pretending to serve Night's King figure Roose Bolton, but he's actually planning on betraying him. Uh, so that is very much like somebody turning against the Night's King. And I think that would help us see the Manderleys as green zombies and people that are fighting against Night's King. So there you are. So I will now pause and turn my attention back to the chats. Melanie says, what could have caused the good other to defect? What could have broken away any sorcery causing the good other to follow Night's King? If that was the case. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would guess perhaps the Children of the Forest. Um, You know, we've also got to wonder about, like, you know, on the TV show, they do everything with dragonglass. And that might not be, that's probably an oversimplification, but one does wonder, is there a way to free a cold white of the spell without burning them? Uh, Or is there to free the soul that's, you know, I think the others are created by, harvesting life energy of sacrifices. So perhaps there's some sort of trapped spirit that can be set free. Uh, You know, we might see that with John, for example. What if John's, um, what if, oh, thanks, Emma. I'll go back and get that one from Kevin. Um, So what if, uh, what if John, uh, let's say while his spirit is in ghost, perhaps his body will get whited by the others and, and be woken up with blue eyes but then somehow they've got to like drive the other spirit out of the body so they can take John's body back. I definitely think that is at least possible as a scenario. And again, this is going to be one of those things where we just have to watch Tiwau and look out for potential echoes for how the green zombies were raised in John's resurrection. So let's go back. I'm going to go back and uh, see if I can find... Well, so I missed one from Emilio who says John will go super Valerian. I do think John is going to, um, John is, yeah, if he has the white hair, is that what you mean? When he, if he has white hair, he'll look more Valerian. I, I do think that's going to happen. Let's see here. Uh, so Kevin Meeker, um, I missed your question. So thank you for the super chat and please repeat your question. Is something about considering Davos as a psychopomp figure. Um, he ferried Edric Storm uh, to life at Dragonstone, and then currently he's on a search for Rickon, which could result in either. So, yeah, so this is um, 
the whole the whole rescuer figure is a psychopomp figure and and that's uh cold hands and sam are both playing a psychopomp figure too because uh they're ushering people back and forth from the land of the living to the land of the dead and back and so that's definitely i mean that's that's the that is what a psychopomp does and davos is doing that too so the question the question is what is the delineation between the rescuer and the rescued and how does that work? Who is the rescuer? Is the rescuer a Dane figure, uh, descended of Nissa Nissa, that doesn't have icy symbolism? Uh, you know, that's that's an open question still. Uh, I, we might do an episode where we turn to the rescuer figures in particular and take a good look at them. Another one that we haven't talked about would be John Connington. Um, with all the blue hair dye, there's a lot of good ice dragon symbolism around him and young Griff. If Rhaegar learned about the prophecy, what was his plan? If he would have survived the trident, Dom Gorham. So that is a good question. I don't know. I really think that the question of what Rhaegar was up to is one of those ones that it's so obscured, we're just going to have to wait to find out. I don't, I mean, I think he was probably in love with Lyanna, but I'm not certain about that. Um, was he potentially planning on using Lyanna? And his baby for a blood magic ritual. That's that's kind of like on the far extreme of the evil Rhaegar spectrum, but it's not you can't rule it out. Uh maybe you know, the most likely thing is that he thought he needed uh a bride of ice, you know, symbolically in order to create uh the child of ice and fire or something like that. But we don't really know. We don't know what his plans were. I mean, we have the clue about he was uh you know, he was getting set to, you know, right the wrongs of his father, he told Jamie. So, Ice Eyes, Night's King figures. However, there are some Ice Eyes figures who are not Night's King figures. Um, he, we've got the Kings of Winter, yes, and then we've got uh, Gendry. And this is back to Storm Emma's comment. I briefly mentioned Gendry as a rescued child figure, but you didn't mention where he was rescued from, his apprenticeship with Tobo Mott. Uh, nod to the thing that came in the night, stealing apprentice boys here. Yes, indeed. Tobo Mott is saturated with icy symbolism. Some examples I've mentioned to you before that might be handy to whip out whoosh, in the live stream as evidence. So, number one, he lives and works on Visenya's Hill, which is an ice moon symbol. Number two, he forges armor for Loras Tyrell that has blue forget-me-nots. Think Promise Me Ned. Yep. Uh, made of sapphires that wink in the sun, implying the sapphire eyes of the others. Absolutely. He wears a silver necklace with a massive sapphire pendant the size of an egg. That's a pretty good one. <laughs> Potentially suggesting a third eye, just as Melisandre's necklace is described as a third eye. But it would be a third eye of ice. And it's hung around his neck uh, like the albatross in the rhyme of the ancient mariner. I don't know that one, so forgive me for being uncultured. Number four, his forge is like a dragon hidden inside the ice moon hill. The dragon locked in ice. Bingo. This is great stuff. Tobo Mott, number five, can rework Valerian steel, i.e. he has magical abilities. As an aside, could Tobo Mott's magical forging ability be potential evidence in favor of Night's King smithing Dawn? Yes, it could, especially if Night's King is a Zorhai Sr., because Zorhai Sr. was a smith. So, let's see. First, we meet Gendry in the clutches of an ice magician and ned is actually the first person to try to rescue gendry from tobomat by offering gendry a place in service to him at winterfell that's true uh that's the king of winter trying to steal a child from an ice moon symbol and an ice figure 
Then Gendry goes with the Night's Watch and ends up with the Brotherhood Without Banners, knighted by Beric himself. All obvious rescued child stuff here and Night's Watch symbolism. So this this gets right back to the whole cycle thing where the stolen Night's Watch baby becomes a green zombie. Or the stolen other baby doesn't just get stolen and become a Stark. He seems to become transformed and he seems to become uh, a green zombie Night's Watchman himself. So the scenario that I'm imagining is uh, at the beginning of Night's King's reign, they steal a baby somehow. And then maybe the baby grows up 13 years or however long uh, Night's King, you know, reigned for. And then he comes back as the last hero uh, 13 years later. That's kind of young for a last hero. But then again, a lot of our protagonists are pretty young. And it's possible that, uh, you know, the thing that he had to do wasn't necessarily swing a sword faster and mightier than everyone else. It could be that the last hero has to do something magical or that he has to be a sacrifice or that, you know, if you're a zombie, it doesn't matter if you're 13. Uh, So (laughs) all those things are possible. But there's definitely a lot of symbolism about the stolen other baby growing up and becoming a hero himself. Let's see here. Final note. Stretching Gendry's name. Gendry. Endry. Endric. Eldric. I mean, it's probably probably too far, but the thing is that George... Uh, this, is, this is how real names get changed in real life, uh, even more so in uh you know medieval times and older times you'd have all these you know in the royal families you'd have all these variants of one name george has talked about how in fantasy there's this rule about never naming people similar names because they're confusing like asha and osha um but he decided to do it because that's actually how real life works is you have people you know with all these variants uh you know they named edric uh, Dane after Eddard Stark, and they're not even that similar, but they have part of the same word in there. So Gendry has that has part of the root of uh, Endric or Eldric. So yeah, maybe. Julie Styles with the super chat. She says, "Thanks for the excellent stuff to think about and talk about during the great Song of Ice and Fire new content drought of 2012 to 2025." <laughs> You're welcome. Um, I'm definitely doing my part to fill the void. And I'm actually, uh, this is what led me to do one of the panels that I'm doing at Con of Thrones, which is why George Martin is a great writer. I really think that, you know, instead of everyone bugging George to write the next book, it would behoove people to, if they, you know, if they still want to live in the world of ice and fire and they, they want more, is to go deeper into the symbolism of the story because there's a whole story within a story. And I think everyone that listens to the podcast and participates in this symbolic analysis would concur that it's enriched all of our lives tremendously to go down the rabbit holes of mythology and learn about these things that have influenced George R. R. Martin. So, yeah, man, it's a party. Like, until we get the winds of winter, there's actually, you know, still more, still more uh, to enjoy. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll be bringing out some of that on the panel. And in fact, let me go ahead and I wanted to run through the panels that I'm going to be on in a little more detail. I announced them sort of haphazardly last time. So let's go through them quickly in order. Let me get a drink for this. 
first panel is going to be Friday at 10 a.m. And by the way, if you're coming to Con of Thrones, uh, please come and say hi to me. I will either be speaking at panels or walking around with horns and uh, possibly the beard. We'll see. It depends on if I can get a more comfortable beard. Okay, Black Eyed Lily's throwing me a super chat question. I'll do this one first. I got here late. Did you cover evidence for who uses the white and black sword last year versus Night's King? If I already discussed, I'll listen later. Yeah, we did get into it, Black Eyed Lily. Um, I don't know that we are reached the bottom of that, but we did get into the bulk of that. So, yeah, check that out on the re-listen. So, Peter, um, Aziz's Robert E. Howard panel is going on at the same time as one of my panels. So, unfortunately, I won't be able to get that one live. In fact, the one complaint I have, which is a small complaint, is that I... I am scheduled opposite Aziz a couple times, and I'm going to miss a couple of his panels, including his live podcast. Um, but the panels will be broadcasted, so hopefully, um, you know, go back and watch those, rewatch them afterwards. And I'm going to bring you guys as much of the content as I'm allowed to uh, via podcast. So I'll make sure you guys get uh, some of the goodness here. So, anyways. Friday, 10 a.m., that's the first day in the Olthos room. It will be the Nature Cycle Mythology of a Song of Ice and Fire with Crowfood's daughter and Quinn from Ideas of Ice and Fire, two of my very good friends. And this will be some of the green zombies mythology, uh, but sort of a little bit of a broad view thing about just the whole cycle of the seasons and the life cycle and what that has to do with framing the story. Um, I think most of my listeners will know what I'm talking about there, but I'll have some new twists on it. And uh, we'll be, of course, uh, collaborating, or I'll be collaborating with Amanda and Quinn, and they'll have their own things to say about that, too. So I think this is going to be a great way to start the panel, start the whole con. Of course, not that I'm the only one going at 10, but it will be starting it off. So there you go. Friday at 2 o'clock in the Essos room, we'll be discovering the Warrior of Light with Gemma from Citadel Secrets and Kyle from Azora Hype. Uh, and we'll be talking about all things Azor High Reborn, who it is, what it means, what the prophecy means, what the legend means, and all of that. So that's going to be fun. And, of course, those are two more good friends of mine, Gemma and Kyle, who have started a new podcast together, which is quite good. And let's see, Eldrick Shadow Chaser number three. Saturday at 10 a.m. in the Olthos Room. What makes George R.R. R. Martin great with Joe Magician and Gemma from Secrets of the Citadel? That's the one I was just talking about. So I don't need to talk about that some more, but that's going to be attempting to... Well, we're going to be talking about things like the unreliable narrator and third-person limited perspective and literary techniques like that, not just, you know, symbolism or whatever. Let's see here. Uh, number four will be Saturday at 3 o'clock. John of the Dead. I'll be appearing with some folks that I am not totally familiar with, Jamika Knott, Steve Love, and Michelle McKelly. And I'm hoping that uh, when I checked originally, uh, they didn't update with more information about them, but I'm going to go back to the website and see if I can figure out who those folks are. I'm sure they are good content creators, and John of the Dead is one of my favorite topics, as you know. We'll be talking about, you know, zombies. And yeah, JoJo Lady Dane seconding my recommendation for the citadel of hype podcast with Gemma and kyle it's uh it's pretty deep um you know a lot of the videos the shorter videos you see on youtube uh are you know don't have time to get super deep because you can only do like 20 minutes of video editing before you go crazy um but the citadel of hype podcast is podcast proper 
and they go for a good hour, two hours, and they get pretty deep on some mythology topics. So it's pretty pretty good. Don't don't look past that one, thinking that it's like just show material. It's not. It's it's really good, um, and they have good chemistry. That's true, which is pretty important. Uh, panel number five, Saturday at four o'clock in the Sartorius room, subverting the seven, deconstructing the faith's archetypes with Quinn from Ideas of Vice and Fire, Aaron Hubbard of Ball Move, and Crowfood's daughter Amanda, who's in the chat. Hey, Amanda. So much to say here, guys. Um, the set, archetypes of the seven, uh, they pull from European mythology, the triple goddess, but they're also George commenting on medieval patriarchy. And there's a lot of interesting things about the idea of uh, women who don't fit into the classic three roles that, you know, as defined in a sort of patriarchal Westeros. And so... We're going to be talking about all of those things, as well as The Stranger. And uh, I also think it's interesting because this is, you know, The Seven is George basically teaching us about archetypes, um, showing us what they are in story, which is kind of meta and cool. Number six, Sunday at 12 noon in the Essos Room, Dragons with the Z's from History of Westeros, Michelle Jaworski of The Daily Dot, and Bex from the Smithsonian Institute and Watchers on the Wall. That sounds exciting. This is my only panel with Aziz, so that's going to be fun. And um, dragons is kind of a wide-open topic, but the fact that we've got somebody that's done work with the Smithsonian Institute makes me think we're going to be talking about, like, physical dragons. You know, like actual dragons as living beings, which is fun. And I will probably throw a little bit of symbolism monkey wrenches into the mix, but we'll have to see. I'll just probably go with the flow on that one, not try to, like go all crazy on it. You know, we'll just have to see what the other folks are talking about. But there's lots to say on dragons. Aziz thinks Vagar is red. Okay, well, we'll have a knockdown drag out fight for sure then. Now, admittedly, thinking that he's white just based on the word hoary is, you know, obviously not conclusive. So I, I think he's white and I think it fits the ice dragon symbolism. Uh, but it's, you know, not something I'm going to throw down on too hard. So I don't know what the clues are that he's red, though. I don't know that there's any clues about that, so I'm not sure why he would think that. Number seven, Sunday at one o'clock in the Sothorios room, Giants and the Children and Beyond with Tony Teflon and Quinn from Ideas of Ice and Fire. And I'm thinking that by this time on Sunday, we'll all be good and loose. So this should be a fun panel. And we might throw out some tinfoil. I might mention my old ones thing, talk about some green men. We'll see. Oh, just because of the, the moon red thing? No, that's, that's the moon turns red when it's eclipsed. That's eclipse symbolism, I think. But anyways, we'll see. If I ever had to have a trial by combat over a Song of Ice and Fire theory, who would you challenge? You know, I really don't get into that kind of stuff. I'm more interested in collaborating with people that are thinking along the same lines than arguing about stuff. And I, I tend to back out of arguments in the forums and stuff pretty quick. So I'd have to say that I, I just, I'm too argumentative. And if I argue with people, it sometimes can just get too intense and, you know, it's just not a good look. So I try to try to keep the arguing, at least, at least try to argue with people that are, I'm on the same page with to a certain extent so that the arguments are, um, you know, collaborative. I'm not interested in, like, for example, arguing the magic versus science theory against Preston or arguing about Ned and Ashara equals John with any of the people that, you know, propose that theory. I'm just I'm just not into it. So last panel, 
Sunday, 4 o'clock, the Don't Go Home Yet panel. It's actually kind of my big one. It's the mythical astronomy and symbolism. It's not really a panel. It's just me. And I'm going to be giving my basic mythical astronomy theory, uh, you know, for people who maybe haven't heard it before, because not everybody knows. You know, a lot of people have jumped in kind of late in the game. You know, they've jumped into Moons of Ice and Fire, where they've sort of gathered the gist of the moon meteors theory. So I'm probably going to do kind of like a better version of my main uh, LML TV long night video and and uh, probably mix in some of the more mythology ideas from Lucifer Means Lightbringer so I can sort of conceptualize what's going on with the whole moon meteor theory. Because I have a feeling that the kind of questions I'm going to get at the con, once I lay out the basic theory, is going to be like, you know, the questions that people have when they first hear about this, like, oh... This sounds too big for A Song of Ice and Fire. You know, moon meteors causing the long night, giant impacts and moons breaking and stuff like that. So I'm going to probably mention some of the places that George got moon disaster ideas from, which there's some great stuff that I found uh, in Lovecraft, uh, in the one about the doom that came to Sarnath. It has freaky creatures coming from the moon. And I'll mention, like, uh, Thundar. I'll show the Thundar clip and also Lord of the Rings. Obviously, in the Silmarillion, there's some uh, there's some long night uh, influences. So the idea doesn't actually come out of left field. I'm going to try to conceptualize that. But I guess the point is, if you're going to Con of Thrones, please hang around if you can till Sunday at four o'clock and cheer me on because I won't have anybody else on the panel. It'll just be me. So I'll save the Thundar thing for uh, when I'm struggling or forgetting what to say. And then I'll bust out the Thundar. Amelia says, so basically you don't like working with, quote, the other because they have differing opinions than you. Well, that's shallow. Well, I really don't think that it's shallow. It's a matter of uh, how I choose to spend my time because researching all of the symbolism takes a lot of time. It really does. And I'm not really interested in parentage theories. There's a lot of people covering parentage theories. There's a lot of people arguing about all that stuff. And I feel like the main thing that I contribute to the fandom isn't really arguing about RLJ, but rather sort of bringing out the symbolism. And so that is what I feel called to do. It's what I enjoy doing. And I also support uh, the general idea of making the Internet what you want, because the Internet can be a nasty, nasty place. And if you want to spend your time arguing with people, you can. And if you don't want to chew on that stuff, you don't have to. And so that's how I choose to spend my time. So call it shallow if you want, but uh, that's that's my choice. So there you go. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't have to be about RLJ, Amelia. It's really just a matter of collaborating. Like, I enjoy collaborating with people who at least share a common view of reality uh, the common way of looking at the the story. You know, someone who looks at the story and thinks it's all science fiction, it's like we don't even share enough common ground to really have what I would call a productive debate. So there it is. I think there might be a couple more questions that I did not get to. Thunderclap, yes. Oh, okay, so here's the, uh, here's the Picel bit that I promised. This is really great. So it says, thanks for another ep- great episode. I may have discovered some connections. So Picel, one, has a long white beard. Two, has a fat round belly. Three, wears long red robes with white trim, which I totally missed. Um, Picel 
pushed himself to his feet. He was clad in a magnificent robe of thick red velvet with an ermine collar and shiny gold fastenings. And he visits children in the middle of the night. Picel has creepy Santa Claus symbolism. Dun, dun, dun. What do you think about that? I think, uh, yeah. I think Picel does have creepy Santa Claus symbolism to go along with his ice beard. And that gets right back to, um, he plays a little bit of a psychopomp figure, actually, because when Ned uh, is passing out after his fight with Jamie, which is right before his Tower of Joy dream, he's served Milk of the Poppy by Picel of the Ice Beard. And that's, and that's sort of, I think it represents a bit of like a, a, a sequence change where he dies, not dies, but symbolically dies when he passes out after the fight with Jamie. And then immediately the next thing we see from Ned, he pops out at the Tower of Joy dream fighting alongside Grey Wraiths. And that's something I'm going to, um, I'm going to go into in the next episode. So Pablo, I will repeat the Picel stuff a little, uh, I'll, I'll talk about it again in the next scripted episode. But basically, um, when we do the Ned stuff in the next episode, I'm going to break down those two scenes as a sequence. We're going to go through his fight with Jamie uh, in the streets of King's Landing and then sort of show how it leads into the Tower of Joy as two parts of the last hero story. The first one is him being alive, being killed with his men. Then he appears fighting the symbolic others at the Tower of Joy. And all his friends are wraiths who are undead people. Um, so you're given this idea of Ned as a last hero fighting the others with undead folks who are black shadows who are like the Night's Watch. So I'll go into that more detail, but that's a little preview of where we are going. So there we go. And that looks – oh, no, there's another one. Jojo Lady Dane, one of my head witches. The Bloodstone Pirates remind me of Euron and his slave crew. Could Euron get the sword Nightfall with its Moonstone pommel? Okay, so that's where I got this from. Uh, from the Harlaws and wield it as a black sword. And so I already talked about that. Yes, I do. Or he might have another black sword. I know it sounds crazy, but I've always had it in my head that Euron is an Azora high figure and that he might do something to start the long night with his Bloodstone Emperor Reborn stuff. I agree with that. But he might turn it around somehow, or perhaps that might become Theon helping John to depose him. I do think that that's going to be the way of it. Like, if Theon has that sort of redemption arc, you know, he's obviously not someone that can defeat Euron in combat. But, again, I, I could see him playing a role in it, just like I could see Ned Dane not defeating Darkstar in combat, but at least playing a role in retaking his family sword. And Theon could play a role in uh, deposing Bloodstone Emperor Euron. So it's a question of whether... I don't know if John's going to fight Euron... Uh, we, we have yet to see how the books will unite the whole Euron storyline with the events of the North. Um, the symbolism implies Euron is going to be, you know, uh, is going to do something like that, but we'll have to see. And that is the end of the scripted questions. So, yes, yeah, Henry, thanks for helping me out. Let me go back through the chat here and see if there is some stuff that I... Oh, Peter Fontaine, here's a good one. I asked earlier, but you probably didn't see, do you think Roos's dirty ice eyes are a nod to corrupted ice magic? Yeah, that's, that's probably the case. I had not thought of that, but I think that's a pretty good observation because uh, Ramsey has the dirty, dirty chips of ice language too. So, yes. And let me give Sanri a shout-out. So, shirts and stickers and prints will be available online after May. 
Sanri says. So if you've seen some of the art that she's been churning out, she's made a bunch of cool stickers, um, dragons and direwolves and stuff. She, those will be available to the general public if you're not going to Ice and Fire Con, where she will be hawking her wares. Okay, so that's good. That's good, Peter. I will file you away for the hat tip bin and talk about that in a future episode. Uh, dirty ice eyes. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of due to go back to the Boltons at some point. So Santa is in my Green Zombies series. Yes, I discussed Patchface and King of Winter, uh, how they overlap with Santa symbolism in the Green Zombies series. But I did not mention Picel because I hadn't made that catch that he's evil, creepy Santa Claus. So. Man, that makes that scene with Sansa even worse. Boy, man, that's creepy. I'm not even going to talk about it. It's too creepy. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Pycelle is one of the most messed up characters in the books. There's no question. Uh, I was not sorry to see his brains splatted out at the end of A Dance with Dragons. I will say that. Thanks for the encouragement, Melanie. I will try to do my best at the con. I am looking forward to it. Oh, is that a super chat in there? Uh, Disputed Lands, thank you for starting my Sunday off great. No problem, no problem. Thank you for your support. And once again, I'll remind people that if you haven't seen the Grey King Weirwood video, it is waiting over at the Disputed Lands YouTube channel as soon as this stream is over. You can go watch it. So, uh, oh, did I not mention the Pycel Icel thing? Oh, yeah, sorry. Sorry, Raven Salix. I mentioned it. It's in, already in the script of my next episode. So Pycel's name sounds like Ice Cell. And, of course, Pycelle being a snowbeard figure who's sort of basically ushering Ned into the dream world by giving him ice, uh, milk of the poppy is uh, right, uh, right up that alley. And he also gives Ned iced milk in an earlier scene, which is a parallel thing. So hat tip to Ravenous Reader, Pycelle Icel. Yes, I believe that is intentional wordplay. That is dragon-approved wordplay. Let's see here. Have I thought about water magic, San Rixian asked. Do I believe it's a duality of ice and fire? So, yeah, uh, somebody pointed out that you could look at ice and water as being part of the same side. However, water, if you add fire to ice, you get water. So you could look at water as sort of like a child of those two. Um, I need to explore that in more detail. I do think uh, we're going to talk about... We're going to talk about... Um, all the watery symbolism when we get to ravenous readers, great under the sea symbolism, which will probably be a whole compendium. Um, so we'll get into that more. We're, that's still an unresolved question. What water and ice have to do with each other? Cause the others are like, um, their voices are like the cracking of the ice on a lake and their surface reflects like the surface of a pond. They're, they're sort of icy shield, and uh, they come from the Weirwood Net, which is under the sea. And the Ironborn, the Drowned Men, are symbolized as others many times. Uh, yeah, so there's definitely a thing there. Uh, we'll get into it. Dragon approved. That's right. All right, guys. Well, I think I'm going to wrap this up here pretty soon, very soon. Uh, my voice is starting to go. I kind of got to go to the bathroom. And you know what? I'm going to go ahead and go over to my... WordPress page, there was a good comment from Derek Warnkin. He says, hello, great series. The idea that there's a generational aspect to the Azor High Dark Solar King, the last hero in the stolen other baby archetypes really rings true to me. Not only with all the evidence you describe, but it also fits with the themes of the series, which is all about generations of families dealing with each other's uh, legacies and that of their parents. One interesting connection to this idea 
is that it has a reflection in the stories we are told of the great empire of the dawn. As you know, the line of the night and the maiden made of light fathered the god on earth, whose son was the pearl emperor. What this is interest, what is interesting is that we are told in the world of ice and fire that it was the pearl emperor who built the five forts, which is the Essosian uh, equivalent of the wall, and that he did so to protect the empire from the lion of night and his monsters. But of course, the lion of night would be the pearl emperor's grandpa. Pretty cool. Sort of George hinting at that whole generational struggle in there. It's a good tip. I like that. Yes, lots of love for Amanda's channel. So thanks, Jojo Lady Dane. Dropped in the link for Amanda's new video. There it is. Okay, guys, so with that, I will say thank you for joining me. And if you're going to Con of Thrones, again, come say hi. Um, I will have one more scripted episode before Con of Thrones, which is the end of May. So basically, I'll be pretty much on schedule. That'll be the Ned episode, which will also contain the symbolism about the end of the world, a.k.a. the coming Ice Moon disaster, which I believe is coming. So I'll have one big prediction, I guess, to throw out before Con of Thrones. And then when I get back from Con of Thrones, like I said, I'll give you guys as much of that material as I can get my hands on and uh, pass it out. So thanks for coming. Thanks for the Super Chats, everyone. Thanks to all my patrons who donated. Thanks to everyone who's coming to Con of Thrones. And that's it. I love everybody. I don't like arguing. Happy times, happy vibes. 